Good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. If uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jay. Get a, an opportunity to lead uh, this community called Cultivate. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. We call that our family gathering because we believe that the church is not a time slot or a building, uh, but it's a people. It's a people that have been adopted into God's family, made sons and daughters, uh, so that we can show the world what God is like as he lives in us. So we're here this morning to celebrate the gospel. We're here to uh, to get equipped in God's word and ultimately to get sent out as uh, as his people to be able to uh, make disciples everywhere we go. Um, before we get into the message, I just uh, want to make one announcement. Well, two actually. Uh, for the lunch today, we didn't get a, a chance to obviously go to Haiti, but I know a lot of people have been asking questions about conditions on the ground and what the plans are going forward and what all this means for uh, our new community and child sponsorships and all that stuff. So I think what we'll do during the lunch at some point is have like a Q&A about some of those things, and I'll share what I know about the situation, and uh, you can ask questions at that point. So I think that'll be helpful for us to do. The second announcement is uh, that we have uh, some needs in our kids' ministry, or Cultivate Kids, uh, which happens on Sunday morning. It's happening right now. Uh, our great teachers have just taken all of our kids down to their various classes to learn about Jesus and to go through the story of God together. And uh, it's a fantastic ministry, and I'm thankful for the people that have served there. Uh, but we have some people that are not going to be able to serve in the coming months because of having their own children. Um, we, we've always uh, said that as Cultivate, you know, our, our mission is to multiply communities. And... Um, Many of our people have taken that very literally from the very first year of our church, and we have a ton of kids, uh, which is a huge blessing, but we have a few people that have served as teachers that aren't going to be able to serve for the next several months. So um, please pray and consider if you can be the one to step in for that time frame uh, and help us out in that ministry. It would be a huge blessing to them, to us, and to our kids. Okay, uh, we have been in a series called Upside Down Axioms. And that's a mouthful. Um, but what we've been doing since, uh, well, for the last several weeks, and we're doing it up through Easter, is that we have been looking at the upside-down sayings of Jesus. These are the, the, the places in the, the Gospels that we often look at deeply, intently, and we focus and we study on them. And then after we do all that, we go, huh? <laughs> what, what does he mean by that? Um, the, these are the things that are either confusing on the surface or deeply controversial. And they're the parts of Jesus' ministry that we often just kind of skip over uh, or we avoid or we just kind of scratch our heads at. And it's important for us, it, 2019, if you haven't been around, is kind of a year of us saying we want to follow Jesus. We want to be people that pursue him in all of life. And the reality is you can't do that unless you look at all of Jesus. There can't be parts of him that you just gloss over or scratch your head at or don't come to terms with because many of the most crucial things that he said actually don't make sense to us on the surface. Or we, like today, we end up um, coming to a conclusion about them and we miss maybe the deeper meaning behind them. So, so that's what we're doing uh, together in this Series. Last week we talked about uh, camels and eyes of needles. 
So you can go back and listen to that on our podcast. Today we're going to talk about uh, how to love our enemies and turn the other cheek. So you get kind of a two-for-one today. So you thought you were getting one message, and uh, lo and behold, you get two. So we're, we're going to be in Luke 6 uh, today. The verses are going to be on the, on the screen. Uh, you can look it up in your app. But this is what it says. We're going to start uh, kind of before these critical lines happen in verse 24, and you'll see why, but we're going to go through this. Uh, Verse 24 says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, there's a a lot of particulars that Jesus goes to in terms of what it looks like. I mean, this is one of those areas where you don't have to get... When Jesus goes, love your enemies... You don't just go, oh, I wonder what he meant by that. Because then he immediately goes right into, like, here, and here's what all that means, right? So, so he, he, this is one of those places where he really fills out the teaching and unpacks it a little bit so that you can see what's going on inside. But it doesn't make it any easier. In, in fact, this is one of those places, maybe the most famous of Jesus' upside-down sayings, where the world looks at it and they go, that can't be done. But here's the, the, this is also the upside down nature of it. What if it was done? Do you ever think about that? Like, what if this was the operating principle of the world? What kind of world would we live in? Like, if it were true that every image bearer of God carried this out in everyday life, like, in fact, I mean, why don't you respond to that? Like, what would the world be like we wouldn't need we wouldn't need any walls we wouldn't need any boundaries or borders or dividers between us yeah they wouldn't be enemies for long we would make friends quickly with people that we're opposed to what else yeah why is that loneliness would be gone
Yeah. Yeah, you, if somebody, you know, well, who's my enemy? It's the person that you're isolated from, probably. Isolated physically, isolated emotionally, isolated spiritually. You closed yourself off from that person, most likely. And so if, if our modus operandi were to love our enemies, imagine the kind of community that we would experience. Okay, here's the other question then. Why don't we do it? If it would result in a better world for everyone who lives on planet Earth, why don't we do it? <laughs> yeah, that's the big thing, right? Nobody wants to, nobody wants to be the first to, re- to lay down their rifle. Because what if I get shot? Yeah, we don't think our contribution to uh, to that endeavor of renewing the world is going to make it. It's gonna, just going to be a drop in the bucket. So we think we're, we're alone in it, and we think that if we go first, like we're done for. And so we we don't, and the world doesn't. Uh, we chalk it up as being too controversial or too confusing, and we ignore it. We think. Somebody else has to go first, or this applies to somebody else, or Jesus really didn't mean enemies. And I'm just, I want to let you know I'm here to say no to all of those. That, in fact, it is for us. It is exactly as Jesus makes it sound, and it is as impossible as you think it is. All of those things are true. Um, so we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it because here's the thing. Uh, the part I didn't read, which comes right before what I started with, is the Beatitudes. And if you remember, we studied those Beatitudes, those blessings that Jesus pronounces back in the fall. And what we said about those things is that this is the reality for everyone who participates in God's kingdom. This is what life should should look like normatively for everyone who calls Jesus Lord, who comes to be part of his family. Like, this, this is how life should look. And, and, and the truth is, you can't just stop after those and go, well, the, the, the rest is optional. No, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't, uh, it, it was one sermon. You can't take part of it and then leave off the rest. It comes together. So, to, so we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. And he, here's what I want to start with. The fact that, that what Jesus is saying here, though it seems radical, is actually not out of line with what God calls his people to all throughout his story. Like from the very beginning up until the time of Jesus, that everything that Jesus is saying is just putting a finer point on a pencil that was already writing this truth in reality. So... He's expanding on something that God has already said. Now, the most famous place to kind of look at to see what Jesus is expanding on and referring to is actually in the prophet Micah, where Micah 6.8 says that God, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. So this is, this is the good life. This is what it means to live under the grace and the mercy of God. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
Justice, mercy, humility. Those three things. Now, if you didn't just read what Jesus said about loving your enemies, you would think that these things kind of cohabit together until Jesus says, oh yeah, and by the way, do these things to everyone, even those that you're completely opposed to. Uphold what's right, love and work towards mercy, and have humility while you do all three. And it's only when Jesus starts to to say this anew, say this afresh, that you start to realize how diametrically opposed these things seem to one another. When in actuality, I think this is what Jesus is trying to get at, that they actually balance one another out. They're, They're critical parts to creating the whole. That if you take one of these things out, you lose the balance of what God is calling us to. It's kind of like the the balance that happens in uh, our environment. I was was watching a documentary about um, what it takes in order to create the oxygen that's in our atmosphere and all the processes and all the things that are in place and how long it takes for all those different pieces and parts to come together to, to create just the air that we breathe. And every time we breathe, we should take into account the fact that all these things are working together. And, and if you remove any one of those processes from the equation, you don't have air. At least not air that we can breathe. And in the same way, these, these things are in tension with one another, but they have to be exhibited both at the same time. That on the one hand... We as God's people stand up for what is right. We work towards a more just world. But we also extend mercy to those who fail that standard. Every single time. And this is what we see in Jesus. That if you look at the life of Jesus, on the one hand, how does it start? He starts out with all these woes. Like, is he just, what is he doing? He's he's calling people to stop. And it seems like he's just harping on the rich. But what he's getting at is all of these people are are laughing, they're rich, they're, they're full to the expense of others. They're doing it at the cost of other people. And, and he's calling these people who are oppressing others to stop. But then he also says, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. So there's this balance between these two things, justice on the one hand, mercy on the other. And Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. It's how you know what God is like, which means to be like God, to be his children, is to walk humbly just as Jesus walked. So here's the question, just to be, maybe be thinking about this. Um, if you think of the person that you have the hardest time with, someone that you're diametrically opposed to, you're opposed to them personally, ideologically, politically maybe, the question is, are you balanced like Jesus is in the way that you deal with that person? Now we're going to talk about what that means, but it's helpful maybe to keep uh, a picture in your mind. Because how you treat those kinds of people shows how you understand God himself and your relationship to him. And this is the balance. It's a balance between justice on the one hand 
and mercy on the other. And this is at the heart of what it means to turn the other cheek. Because this is why I put these two together. Because you, you can't understand how to love your enemies if you don't understand what it means to turn the other cheek. Turning the other cheek is actually how you love them. It's, it's loving them in action. So the two go together. Now, it's helpful sometimes when you're defining something to look at what it doesn't mean, right? So what, is, what does turning the other cheek not mean? And the, the first thing I want us to see is that it doesn't mean pacifism. It doesn't mean just taking abuse. Now, there's a myriad of examples of this, but one of them is in Job. And Job is a guy who's been seriously mistreated. Um, and he goes through his life, and he, he's looking at his life, and he's trying to find where he got off track and, and where he's been at fault. And he's trying to figure out, like, what have I done to God? What have I done to other people? And he looks at his life, and he comes to this conclusion at the end, which is pretty remarkable. He says this, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice as my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. So he's saying, like, when it comes to the widows and the orphans and the poor and the sick and the fatherless and the immigrants, those people that are disadvantaged, I saw their condition and I stepped up and I did something about it. I put on justice as my robe. I went to bat for these people. And I fought back against people that oppress others until their victims were set free. That's what he says. Does this sound like turning the other cheek? It is. But it's not being passive. Job is actually being like God. Because if you look at all these terms, what you find out is that God... All of these terms actually describe what God is like. Every, everything that's said about Job here is said about God somewhere else. Which means if we're going to be like God, our Father, means that we're going to be like Job, which means we're not passive in the face of injustice, in the face of mistreatment, in the face of abuse. But... Jesus pronounces all these woes, and then as soon as he finishes them, he turns around and the tone of his talk immediately changes, and he says, yes, and love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you, and if someone slaps you on one cheek, then turn to them the other also. And he comes in with the other arm, and he says, this is what it looks like to extend mercy now, I, when people think about this term of turning the other cheek, I think the, the main confusion comes in when you think, and, you, and I, I've said this to myself certainly, but we, we think to ourselves, if someone is acting unjust to you, if someone's mistreating you and harming you and doing evil to you, how can you be both, how can you call out their injustice and at the same time act merciful? Like can't you can do one or the other, but you can't do both simultaneously. 
And I, I think the, the main mistake is that we think that when Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek, he's talking about someone coming in and doing physical harm to you. Like if someone comes at you with a knife, am I just supposed to, okay, you cut me on this cheek, like now go for this one as well. Like let's just match the scars, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's not what he's saying. Because think about this. If, if he's talking about doing physical harm to other people, like, is anybody like a martial arts master here can speak to? Okay, great. If you were going to go and take somebody out, would you go, I'm going to go for their cheek? <laughs> All right. Uh, open-handed, like right across the face. It's just going to level them. <laughs> Probably not, right? I mean, the, when you think about all the sensitive parts of how to take a person down, the cheek doesn't even hit the top ten, right? So he's not talking about physical attack. So what is he talking about? He's talking about an insult, He's not talking about someone assaulting your physical safety. He's talking about assault on your honor. He's talking about being personally or maybe even publicly disrespected. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek when you're insulted, he's saying my followers, are, are when, they're, when their character is attacked, when their identity is attacked, when they're accused of, of wrongdoing, when they're slandered, when they're laughed at for following me, they will respond to that, that kind of attack in a way that the world has never seen before. They will respond in a way that, that is both concerned for upholding what's right while at the same time having no concern for themselves or their ego. In other words, and this is the, I'm going to be careful and slow when I say this. Jesus is saying, my followers are not worried about how they look when someone insults them, but uphold what is right without spite for the person who insulted. They uphold what's right without being full of spite for the person that did the attack. They're not okay with the behavior, but they're ready to extend mercy to the one who misbehaved. And isn't this the complete opposite of the way that the world responds to mistreatment? I mean, it's the total opposite. Because how how do you tend to respond when someone mistreats you? Typically, it's in one of two ways. Typically, it's either you're passive about it or you're vengeful about it. So... or a combination of the two, right? We'll get to that in a second. But the, think about the passive response. Someone mistreats you, and instead of turning the other cheek, what do you do? You keep the cheek there that was mistreated, and you let them do it over and over and over and over and over again. The cheek that's been slapped continues to get slapped because you allow it again and again. That's being passive. Some of us, when we're mistreated, when we're wronged, 
We just roll over. And we allow it to happen again and again because we think it's the Christian thing to do. We think we're following Jesus' command by not complaining and not speaking up and not rebuking and not confronting and not calling it what it is. In other words, you you tend to find it more painful to confront than to allow it to continue. And you just take the abuse because you don't want to rock the boat. Now, if that's you, you need to hear this. If you think that you're turning that you're turning the other cheek by being passive, you're wrong. Now I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, and I don't know how I'm doing with this at this moment in time. But you have to hear that. Because the truth is, you're, you're not being passive because it's the Christian thing to do. You're being passive because you're afraid of what will happen if you speak out. It's not based on love, it's based on fear. And we don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of love. Jesus says, my people are like Job. They, they seek justice. They stand up for what's right. And they stand up for those who are wronged, including when it happens to us. But passivity is one of those responses that we have when we're mistreated. Now, the other one is to be vengeful about it is to have a vengeful response. In other words, when when your cheek is slapped, what do you do? You slap back, probably harder than, <laughs> than you were slapped. And yeah, right. And it, maybe you close your fist when you do it. In other words, you're, you you don't turn the other cheek, you pay them back. You make them feel as bad as you feel. Do do you know that uh, gossip is one of our primary weapons for this kind of vengeful response? Because what are you doing when you gossip? You're tearing them down to the degree that you've been torn down. you're, You're trying to slap their reputation as hard as yours has been slapped. And you go and talk to other people about, uh, about the person who's wronged you rather than going to the person themselves in the way that we're going to talk about. And that's a vengeful response. You're slapping back. You're not turning the other cheek. And it's, it's just as wrong as being passive. Now, some of you are going, I'm, yeah, passive camp, right? That's me. Others are like, I'm vengeful camp. That's me. I'm willing, don't raise your hands, okay? (laughs) I'm willing to guess, though, that the majority of you would go, I kind of have a foot in both. And I vacillate between the two. Actually, I'm so good, I can do both at the same time. (laughs) Because there's a couple different ways that we do this. Uh, one option to kind of be in both camps is that you're mistreated and you go passive. You don't complain, you don't speak up, and you allow it to happen again and again and again. And you think that you're doing the Christian thing. You think you're being you know, the, the person who loves their enemies and turns the other cheek, but you just take it and you take it and you take it. And then one day, the, the straw breaks the camel's back and you explode. 
And people go, what is wrong with them? Well, they, they haven't been following Jesus' command. That's what's wrong. They thought they were, but in the end they weren't. Now, here's the other option, though, is to do both at the same time. And we call that passive-aggressive. And nobody thinks that they're passive-aggressive, but, but if you actually open the hood and look at what's going on underneath... I mean, isn't it true sometimes when you're mistreated and when you're wronged on the outside, you're doing everything you can to, like, duct tape that thing together and keep your cool and not respond in, in vengeance and just, like, no, every, no problem here. I'm fine. Everything is awesome. We're good. But on the inside, you're burning with rage. On the inside, you're falling to pieces. On the inside, you're stewing over what they did to you. On the inside, later on, maybe even years later, you're winning theoretical arguments with this person and going over in fine detail all the things that you would love to say to them, but the words never come out of your mouth. Internally, you're tearing them down. Outside, you're trying to hold it together. The truth is, this is the most dangerous way to deal with mistreatment, actually. We laugh about it, and we 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 you know we call it something like passive aggressive and 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 make light of it. But actually, if if this is you, it's going to turn you into a bitter person. You're going to be defined by bitterness, which isn't winning over the mistreatment. It, it's it's not it's not getting past it. You might think that you're winning by stuffing it down, but you're being overcome by it because you're still under the control of the person who mistreated you. This is why forgiveness is so important to beat bitterness. Because if you don't, then the wrong is still present to you and it has you by the throat. It's actually controlling the way that you live and the way that you think and the way that you act. Isn't it? Jesus is saying to be passive or to be vengeful or to be both. None of those things are my way because none of them work. They don't work. They lead to the misery that we're experiencing in the world today. None of them are the way that I want my followers to respond to wrongdoing and to to mistreatment. In fact, we're to live the exact opposite way. Because the the natural response to our heart when we're mistreated is to be passive on the outside and vengeful on the inside. Right? It's on the outside, don't rock the boat. On the inside, full of anger and resentment. Our response, the the gospel-centered, Jesus-saturated, God-honoring way to respond to mistreatment is, is to flip those things on their head. And to be actively opposed to mistreatment on the outside and to be filled with peace and forgiveness on the inside. It's the exact opposite of the way that we respond. It's on the outside to to tell the truth and to call sin, sin. But on the inside to have a, a desire to extend mercy and kindness to the people that did the wrongdoing. To turn the other cheek means you don't keep the original cheek there for someone to keep abusing, nor do you slap them back. But instead, 
and this is key, you take their ability to slap the first cheek away. You remove their ability to keep slapping it. You speak up. You stand up. You call it out. But then, once you've done that, you offer a new cheek. In other words, you continuously give people, when based on new terms, the ability to start a new relationship. This is what Jesus did. Um, (laughs) Jesus had uh, incredibly crafted words for a group of people called the Pharisees, right? I mean, he, he denounced their activity and their behavior. He even resorts to name calling, right? <laughs> As if just saying what they're doing isn't bad. He, he goes a step beyond that and he says, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you, you, you strangle people with your teaching. You make them twice the son of hell. I mean, these are strong words, right? <laughs> He says you're, you're full of legalism and you're, you're full of heresy and you're, you're full of hypocrisy. Now, what happens, though, when one of those Pharisees comes to see Jesus in the middle of the night? What happens? What happens is we get the most famous declaration of the gospel and the most famous Bible verse in the entire scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, Nicodemus, whoever, my friend, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who is that verse given to? It's given to a viper. It's it's given to a whitewashed tomb who comes and sees Jesus and says, please help me understand this. And Jesus doesn't go, get away from me. He says, come here. And he extends mercy. He loves mercy. He he desires it over everything. My guess is if every single one of those Pharisees lined up to sit at Jesus' feet and to, to, to ask him what life was really about and they humbled themselves before Jesus, he would have received every last one of them. Uh, here's an example from life. Um, I have a friend who, uh, over a very long period of time, was being abused by her mom, emotionally and verbally. For years, she was being abused. And for years, she thought it was the Christian thing to do just to take it. And and, in fact, there was a lot of fear going on because it was the only way that she thought to to keep my mom in my life means I just have to accept her as she is. I can't say anything about the abuse. I'm just going to listen to it and take it and pray and, and, and just ask God to help me to forgive her. And for years, that was the basis of their relationship. And bitterness grew and resentment grew in her heart. Until one day, 
Um, I don't know what the motivation was, but I know that she said to her mom basically something along these lines. I can't allow this to continue anymore. I, I love you, Mom. I, I am so thankful for all that you did for me to raise me. I wouldn't be the person I am today without your influence. I appreciate that deeply. But to speak of me that way and to speak of my children that way is wrong and I will not allow you to do it anymore. And then she said to her, I'm putting an end to it and I'm hanging up the phone right now. But I want you to know that I'm still here for you. I still care for you. I still love you. And if you're willing to change the way that you speak to me and about our, your grandchildren, I will be here to receive that phone call. And she hung up the phone. See, if she continued to take it because of fear of rocking the boat, that's not turning the other cheek. But on the other hand, she could have blown up at her mom and said, look, I've had it with you. You think you're a good mom? Let's rehearse all the things, you know, like let's go back and rewind the tape and let me tell you what kind of mom you've been to me. Let's even the score. I'll slap you back. And neither of those things is Jesus' way, but her response to love her mom but to refuse to allow the behavior at the same time is what it means to turn the other cheek. She offered the ability to start over. She said, this isn't right, but I want a relationship with you. But I want it to be based on justice and love. I'm not going to get hit repeatedly, and I'm not blowing up or blowing you off. I'm offering a fresh start. See, to love your enemies does not mean you let them continue to do what's evil. How in the world is it loving to continue to let someone sin? You tell me. How is that the loving thing to do for that person? Loving your enemies means that you clearly, clearly oppose their behavior without opposing them. It means you call out their conduct while showing care for the person. And unless you do both, you're not turning the other cheek. Because to turn the other cheek means to seek justice to love mercy. It's not one or the other. It's both together. And when we do both together, that's the hope for the world. Now let me ask again. Does this sound hard? Some of you, when when I said it in the beginning, what stops us, you said it's hard. This would be, this is my... um, my opinion. It's not hard. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Whew. <laughs> it's not just hard. It's impossible. And that's the point. It, it, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' Magna Carta of what it looks like to live in his kingdom, He constantly calls us to things that are impossible. Doesn't he? Make your righteousness greater than the Pharisees. Love your enemies as yourself. Like all these things, you read through them, 
If you're really taking stock of what that calls you to, the only conclusion that you can come to at the end is, I can't do this. I can't live this way. It's never going to happen, Jesus. And that's the point. Because it's not just good advice. He knows it's impossible. He understands it's impossible. And that the only way to do it is to remember that we have a, a power source to do it that doesn't reside naturally within our own heart. And that, that's the other piece of that Micah 6.8 when, when he says that this is the, what the Lord requires of you, which sounds like rules, right? Act justly and love mercy, but oh, by the way, walk humbly with your God. In other words, you can't do the first two without the last one. And if you, if you think this is good advice, if you think, wow, this is a different way to live. I've never considered this before. I'm going to go try it out. But you don't include the one who said it. You're doomed to fail. You need... You don't just need the the advice of the one who said it. You need the presence of the one who said it. That's the only way it's going to work. Because how does Jesus end this whole uh, section in verse 35 and 36? He says, Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. What he's saying is, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is merciful. And he's not just merciful to the worst kind of human beings that you can possibly think of. What Jesus is getting at is, you're the wicked. (laughs) How does he start the whole thing? To you who are listening. He's not speaking hypothetically about some other group of evil people. He's speaking to them and he's saying, God has been merciful to you though you've been wicked. Romans 5.8 says that while we were sinners, God died for us. In other words, the way that you know that God treats everyone this way is that God treated you this way. And that if you're a son or daughter of God, if you've been adopted into his family, if you've been made uh, to, to follow Jesus, then that means that you were once God's enemy. That you were opposed to him. That you were wicked. Even if you had the best intentions in walking through life and trying to be a good person, Weren't you or aren't you trying to do that in a sense without God's help and assistance? So that he might be impressed with your good behavior and let you in based on your moral record? God says that that's what enemies do. Children realize that they've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven that's in Christ and they come at, at his cost, not at my cost. That Jesus did justice and he loved mercy towards you at the same time. And when he went to the cross, he, he displayed for all to see just how bad your sin was. 
that that it took the life of the Son of God to pay for it. You think moral goodness is going to achieve what Jesus, the perfect Son of God, could by only going to the cross on your behalf? No. Jesus went to the cross and He called your sin what it is. He put a label on it and He he showed the, the, the immense gravity of it. But then at the very same time, he paid for it with his perfect life so that he could extend mercy to you and offer a fresh start to you. And not, not even just a fresh start for him, but a new life in him. And that means that, family, when we're wronged, and we're going to be wronged, when we're mistreated, and we will be mistreated, when we're abused, and we will be abused, when we're used, when we're rejected, when we're publicly slighted, that we should immediately ask ourselves the question, how did God treat me when I did the same to him? How did he treat me when I, in the way that I, just, I treated him, which is the same as I've just been treated? is to remind ourselves of, the mis- of our mistreatment, of our use of God, of our rejection of His goodness. And you remember that he, he didn't excuse your behavior, but He paid for it in Christ. And that there's now no condemnation for you who are in Christ because you're clean forever. The truth is, anywhere that you're not able to extend mercy is most likely a place where you have a blind spot to your own need for refusing to give it away. It's an area where you think, nah, I, don't, I don't need forgiveness in that area, but that scum certainly does. And we forget. And the only way for us to be able to turn the other cheek and to live this way is to remember And you can't just do it once. It's not just an altar call where you raise your hand and you come forward and you pray a prayer and then you're good forever. Because your heart continues in unbelief. Because when you go out into the world, you get mistreated again. You thought you had it licked and then you go out and somebody does something to you again and you respond the entire same way again. What do you have to do at that point? You have to remind yourself of the gospel. You have to come to terms with who you are in Christ and what it took to make that so. Now, here's the greatest news of the gospel. It's the part that we all forget all the time. Is that this process of remembering who God is and what he's done and who we are now and how we respond out of a new nature We don't just get good principles to do it. We don't just get a good reason to respond this way. We get the person himself who gives us the power to do it. And so when when you're mistreated, the next time you're mistreated, or if you're still reflecting on the last time that you've been wronged, you ask yourself first, how did you treat me, God, when I did the same to you? And then the next question you ask is, 
how will you enable me to respond differently? Not how will I do it for you, not, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm at the end of myself, God. I need your presence to come and to do it for me. And the, the Father loves to extend mercy. Not just to you, but through you to others. That's what the table's all about. Week after week, we celebrate uh, the gospel by coming to the table. I know we're going to do this in a minute, and someone will come and explain all these things again. But we come to the table, and we we remember. We remember Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, which is remembering how God treated us. Though we were still sinners, God poured out his blood to cleanse us of our sin, to make us new. But then on the other hand, we have the, the bread which symbolizes his body. Do you know what that is? It was Jesus' body broken for us so that he could then come and live in us and live differently through us. So when you take the elements of communion, you're not just making a promise to God about what you will do. You're asking God to come and fill you again so that he can do what he will. And that makes all the difference in the world. Love, act justly, love mercy, turn the other cheek. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank you this morning for a different way, a a way that seems upside down to the way that the world operates, that when we are mistreated, we want to have that debt which has been incurred uh, paid by the other person. And we will take it out on them until we feel like it's paid. But God, you, you want to enable us for a different way. You want us to see that you already paid for it. So that now we, instead of um, wanting to tear them down in payment of their mistreatment, we can then pray for their restoration because you've already paid for the mistreatment. God, we, we want a different way. Help us to see, Father, that um, in our fear, we, we so often don't want to be the ones to go first. But the good news of the gospel is that you went first, and we get to follow you. Enable us to see how we can respond differently this week. Renew our mind. And we pray that Jesus would get all the credit for it. In his name, amen.